Hey guys, welcome back. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. I'm Chris Bircher. This is episode 138. Water is vital to being. Because it's something, I guess, called International Water Week, or this week, it is uh, the week of August 22nd, 2023. Uh, I imagine, I don't really know what that's about, but I imagine it's something... Uh, to do with increasing awareness about how important water is uh, internationally around the world. And water's a big thing. Let's just cut cut to the chase and just say water's a big deal. It's a big part of my background. It's a big part of my training. It's a big part of my interest. And it might be the perfect model uh, for all things uh, in a way, if you allow me <laughs> the next 20 minutes or so to present my argument, <coughs> excuse me, I actually have COVID. <laughs> That's right. I uh, did some traveling and I came back with this. And so it's a perfect place to isolate down here in my studio. So water is vital to being. There's a whole lot going on in there. Being. That's a big part about what this podcast is, right? We're human beings being human. You know, we are these meat bag entities, biological organisms. Uh, in fact, we're a pretty highly evolved, sophisticated, complex, neurologically diverse version of animals on this planet, in this biosphere, in this universe. Um, many people would say we're mo- the most advanced, we're the best, whatever you want to say. Uh, but we are biology. Uh, we are biological organisms or being. We're also 70% water, <laughs> right? So most of us, <laughs> besides being space, you know, as far as like particle theory goes, uh, we're water on a planet that's also got a lot of water on it. And, uh, you know, granted, a lot of the water on planet Earth is saline. Right, it has lots and lots and lots of things dissolved in it. But if you think about that, that's perfect because that's what water is. That's one of the things we call water. And we'll take a quick, like, chemical, physical, physio, physical, chemical journey down what water is here quickly. Is the universal solvent? Everything dissolves in water except for things like oil and grease and butter. You know, some things don't. Uh, but the, the 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 unique molecular structure of water just it calls out how different and important it is, right? I mean, how many shining flashlights do you need to point at something to know that it's a sign? Water is weird uh, and weird being like different from everything else. And so, of course, it's important. Water has very specific bonds and a very specific structure that makes it have a positive and negative end like a magnet, they attract each other. Let's, let me think about water. Water is like this liquid, amorphous substance, you know, that, you know, if you pour, pour it into a glass, right, it, it's, it looks like one thing. Out in the ocean, it looks like one thing. Uh, but you can isolate like a drop of it. And when you do have a drop of it, it's round because of those bonds. It's so weird. Not to mention on planet Earth, in given the sort of comfortable range of temperatures for human beings and most of life on earth, not all of it, most of it, water freezes at zero degrees Fahrenheit, uh, right, or degrees Celsius centigrade, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it boils 
at 100 degrees centigrade. Perfect system there, right? Zero and 100. That's when, why, why would we come up with a temperature range like that? That's because at the low end, nothing. Water turns into ice. And at the high end, it turns into steam. <laughs> it's not liquid. Well, it's fluid, but it's not liquid anymore. It's a gas. So you got a solid, liquid, and gas. And now, <laughs> excuse me, now we think we've discovered a different form of water in deep in the Earth's crust that's sort of like in some matrix form with uh, the rock. Uh, I don't know much about that, so we'll talk about that. I'll sort of say what I do know. That's weird, right? Uh, that our life is sort of built around the range of temperatures that makes water good, and that just happened or changed forms. And we wouldn't have a very diverse ecosystem if everything was ice, uh, I don't think. Or maybe we would. I don't know. It just wouldn't look anything like the one we have now. Or if everything was steam. You know, right now, ice is kind of like the rare form. Unless you reach the poles and during one of the seasons, water can freeze. We have snow. Ponds freeze over and you can ice skate on them in the northern and the very southern latitudes. We got Antarctica and Alaska and the Arctic Circle and places where there's always kind of ice and glaciers and stuff where there used to be. Uh, so that's how the planet works. And that creates this interesting temperature gradient where it's kind of warm in the middle and cold on both ends. And when you have air, uh, that it, it causes circulation as we have these temperature changes because warm air rises and cold air falls. So now you get these, these cycles of air moving around the planet. I like to think about a time where the earth had a more uniform temperature. There was no wind without temperature gradients. There is no wind. And similarly, inside the ocean, inside bodies of water, uh, water has this weird density thing. You think ice and steam and water is freaky? Check this out. Water is the least dense at 4 degrees C. And you know what that means? The short story of that? Ice floats, right? You put ice cubes in your drink, they float to the top. You go ice skating on a pond because the ice is floating on top of it. What if ice sunk? Bodies of water would freeze from the bottom up. The oceans might be mostly frozen in the bottom, right? It's so weird to think about. Animals would not live under a pond year-round because the whole pond would freeze from the bottom up because ice sinks. It doesn't sink. It floats. It's so weird that as ice cools, as water cools and turns into ice, it actually starts to get less dense. Or actually, at 4 degrees C, I had that backwards, water is most dense and it sinks, right? That's why. The ice floats or something like that. You can do the research. It's been a long time since I taught this stuff. Anyway, ice floats because water has this weird thing because as it's going through those changes, either from liquid to solid, from solid to liquid, from liquid to gas, from gas to liquid, a lot of energy is required. A lot of weird things are going on in the molecule because, again, water is so weird. Uh, and, and so... Why would we not be looking at water? You know, and as much as I did a whole series on uh, the uniqueness imperative and how we are we are DNA, and that life basically is all about our DNA trying to live forever and trying to perpetuate the message of biology through time. Water is the great regulator; it's always there. And I thought about this the other day. Like water is really the greatest example of the second is it the second law of thermodynamics the one that says matter is uh, neither created or energy is matters neither created nor destroyed it just changes forms kind of like water you don't really create a whole lot of water there's not a whole lot of 
the two H's and the O's like fusing together to create new water molecules, but sure does go everywhere. And that's the second thing I sort of want to talk about besides the chemistry is the global hydrologic cycle and why water is such a good representative, uh, variable, measure, model for climate change and everything that's going on on the earth. Everything that goes on on the earth, we can look at water to understand. So... If you're not familiar with the hydrologic cycle, you probably learned about it in fourth grade. You probably learned about it again in 12th grade, and you might have learned about it in college, and then nobody talks about it anymore. Basically, where do I want to start? You know, If you look at a stream, it's flowing, right? That's the difference between a stream and a lake, right? Streams flow, lakes don't. Lakes just, just like a bowl full of water. And sure, water comes in and out, but not the same way. Streams, you can look at it and see that it's moving, or rivers, right? It's flowing, so I ask people, like, where's the water come from? And most people will say, rain. It rains and stream flows. Well, I'd be like, hadn't rained here in a long time. <laughs> hadn't rained in weeks. Where'd that water come from? Basically, water is either moving or it's stored. One of the fundamental and most obvious places where water is stored is in ice. It's stored in Antarctica. It's tied up in glaciers. It's frozen. It doesn't go anywhere. It stays there a long time, <laughs> thousands of years maybe before it moves. But the thing about water is it does move all over the planet consistently. It's just a matter of how fast it moves. In a stream, you watch it go, going pretty fast. It might be going 100 meters per second. I don't know. Flying down some river in some steep mountain stream or a waterfall, that water's moving pretty quick. But underneath that stream is what we call an aquifer, or you might call groundwater. Water is stored underneath the top layers of the Earth's crust in these sort of pools or, you know, vaults of water. And when rainwater falls, it doesn't just go in a stream and move downstream. Ideally, it percolates through the soil, stabilized by vegetation, and goes into the groundwater. And then what actually makes streams flow is that groundwater, once it gets sort of full, <laughs> you know, and the, the percolating water from the soil and rock is pushing down on it, it pushes back up into a stream channel and becomes a stream. And that's why you see stream flow. That's why streams will flow year round, regardless of rainfall pattern. And sure, there's a lot of other things going on. Like if rainfall falls over the continental land, it can hit the surface and run off. And it, then it will eventually form these little tribulates. And you've seen this, like if you look out in the street when it rains and it's flowing down the gutter, it does that, except over land, just more slowly. And if the ground is really dry, it flows over really fast. If the ground is kind of moist and really porous, it'll just kind of drain through the land where it falls. And that's kind of an ideal situation for keeping water around. The second one is somewhere like the southwest united states where it's super dry and it's just like hard pan and when water hits the sand or the dirt whatever it just runs off and it runs away and it goes away <laughs> so if rain falls in your yard it's not yours it's somebody else's but in a lot of places like where i live in the eastern united states deciduous forest the water sort of sinks into these aquifers and it keeps them charged year-round and streams flow year-round there's always a lot of water so when people need to withdraw water, either from wells or from storage facilities or directly from rivers and run them through treatment plants and have water, we have a lot of it. The, the, the Southwest United States doesn't. And there's a lot of places around the world that are sort of have water insecurity because they don't have that percolating soil that recharges their groundwater or it doesn't rain a lot or some combination of the two. So all these things you have to consider 
And so uh, the type of forest cover, the type of land cover you have is going to dictate the type of aquifer you have that's going to dictate how much water supply quantity that you have on hand. The problem then, and so then it can go uh, slowly or quickly, it will eventually drain off of the continent into the oceans where it evaporates and reconcentrates, but it is, it again, is in a marine environment. It is a saline, a lot of solutes in the water by the time it gets down there. Over land, yes, water does pick up chemistry from the ground, from the aquifer, from whatever it, it has contact with, but it's happening so fast, it doesn't pick it up as quickly. But the water does have different signatures around the world depending on the geology. But by the time it gets to the ocean, it's kind of in this big, giant storage facility. And all of the stuff that washes off gets concentrated in there over time. And then the next step in the hydrologic cycle, when water evaporates from the ocean into the air, it's kind of like reverse osmosis. Well, it's not reverse osmosis, but it's kind of like distillation. The, most of what evaporates from the ocean is just H2O. So it leaves behind all that stuff over millions of years. Guess what? You get this concentrated ocean with all kinds of stuff dissolved in it that doesn't go anywhere. Some of it sinks to the bottom. A lot of it stays dissolved. But because of that different density thing that I talked about, as water cools and reaches its maximum density at 4 degrees C, it sinks. And so even if the ocean is 5 miles deep, as the different water temperatures happen, that water mixes up and down. Right in these sort of vertical gyres or cycles that brings water up from the bottom and up to the top all around. Not to mention sort of the horizontal currents that happen due to temperature differentiation and wind and a little bit of the Earth's moving sort of rotation. So you get uh, mixing of those solutes to where the ocean is fairly consistent. It's crazy, right? But anyway, so as that distillation process occurs and water warms up and evaporates into the sky you get precipitation. It moves over land, it falls out. And that's basically the hydrologic cycle and a lot of the explanation of different chemistry. Okay, so what? Well, based on temperature variation across around the planet, it's warmer in the middle and it's colder at the poles, but it also moves around up and down because of the different density effects, because there's wind, because there are these cycles like the jet stream, and like the gulfs in the air, and the jet gulf stream in the water, if you look at a map for, for like sailing, we've got this figured out. Over thousands of years, we've sort of seen that ocean currents are consistent. Wind currents are kind of consistent. Weather in the United States blows across the continent from west to east, generally speaking. The gulf stream comes from the Gulf of Mexico, goes around Florida, goes up the Atlantic coast, and on over to Europe. Ocean kind of flows that way, almost like a river. It's not the stagnant bowl of water like we think about. Those things are have repeated for as long as we've had history and even before. And that's what made sailing possible. You know, that's what made when somebody left Thailand in a birch bark canoe or whatever and some carved out log with a piece of, you know, cow tied to the front of it. They learned about these consistent patterns. If, if wind... And water circulation was random, we'd have no, no hope of ever figuring out that we could travel around in these things. So, why do I say all that? Why? Well, water's amazing. If you didn't know all that stuff, um, I, 15 minutes doesn't do it justice. And I might have forgotten some things and messed a little bit up, but I think I got most of the parts right. Uh, it's been at least 15 years since I've taught that. Maybe longer. Uh, anyway, um, the problem is that stuff is changing. 
And granted, we don't have a very thorough record of rainfall patterns and temperatures around the world. We haven't been recording that stuff very long. And outside of that 200-year window when we've been measuring those things and recording it on a daily basis and saying, you know, the mean temperature on March 3rd in Toledo, Ohio was X, right? We kind of got a handle of that over the last 100, 200 years. We have some ways of sort of estimating that going back. And then we have some other ways of estimating that in sort of five to 10,000 years. And then we have other ways of estimating that going way back hundreds of thousands of years. And we can come up with a story uh, about what we think temperatures were like in different places around the earth, water temperatures based on ice cores, based on CO2 concentrations, based on sort of proxy measures of temperature, based on sex ratios and insects, all kinds of stuff. And if we piece all that together, and you know, it's like making a quilt out of seashells, bottle caps, toenails, uh, and Doritos. You know, they're not, they're all different materials and you're trying to weave, you're trying to, trying to weave them into the same story. So we know it doesn't fit well. It's going to be a little smelly and it's probably not going to tell the whole truth, but all models are wrong and some are useful. It is helpful to sort of to sort of look at and go, oh, 12,000 years ago, there was an ice age. It was so cold, generally speaking, around the planet that there were glaciers in, you know, in um, Illinois or whatever. And we have evidence of that. We can look for that and sort of see that these things do change. What we're seeing now, and personally, I don't know, but what the data say is that Water, the hydrologic cycle is changing the way water is distributed around the earth. And what's generally happening happening is, and we got to remember that, you know, there used to be forests where now there are deserts and vice versa. So the, the planet, the distribution of moisture and sort of long-term water patterns, like having a charged aquifer, like Virginia versus Arizona, those have changed and flip-flopped lots of times, Right. And what we're experiencing now, I think, is just a more rapid version of that. And what's happening, generally speaking, wet places are getting wetter and dry places are getting drier. But what makes it weird is some of those dry places are also experiencing these ridiculously huge storms. So in a dry place like a desert, you may only get like two rainfalls a year. And maybe you only get an inch of rain a year. And it's dry all the rest of the time. Well, now maybe what's happening is you're only getting one of those rainfalls a year, and it's five inches. So you're getting weirdness, right? These patterns that have been, again, we don't know for sure if they're accurate patterns. Uh, We don't know for sure if these variations that we're seeing are sort of within the realm of normal because we simply don't have enough data. And a lot of that data, again, was woven together like Doritos and seashells. Um, But it does appear to, 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 to be true that we're getting... Longer droughts, more severe drought, more severe everything. And then and so then sort of the opposite, more unsevere uh, everything. I know for me personally, uh, what I experience where I live in a place that's pretty pretty wet, we get 25 inches of rain a year. It's, thunderstorms are pretty normal. It, there's periods of rain. There's Every once in a while, there's a drought. We're not getting, well, the dryness is exacerbated. So like sometimes my lawn will be crunchy, for example. Well, this year and the last few years, there are, that happens a lot more often, and it seems like, oh my gosh, the grass is going to die. Again, I'm not saying this means anything. I'm just saying that there are pat- the patterns, even where I live in my backyard, look different. It's wetter, and it's drier at different times. 
Uh, and certainly it's been warmer <laughs> in general. Now, when you look at this around the world, you're going to see pronounced exaggeration and more obvious differences in places that are more extreme. So if you got places that flood a lot or have flooded a lot, as long as we have remembered, they're probably flooding a lot more often and worse. When I was in Annapolis at the boat show in 2019, most of the town was underwater. And it was a weird combination of like a weird neap tide and a whole lot of rain. But, you know, they wouldn't have built the town there <laughs> if that was something that happened on a fairly regular basis. And they would have moved stuff right? If it happened frequently enough, and maybe they will one day. I don't know. The point that I'm saying is, that I'm trying to make is that understanding the hydrologic cycle is critical to making your way to understanding what's going on with anything at a global scale, because it is kind of the ultimate global cycle. And there's a lot of them. You know, one of the things I learned about in school was how elements or atoms move around the earth. You know, there's a nitrogen cycle, a potassium cycle, there's a soil cycle, you know, a sediment cycle. Things move around the planet through these sort of channels of circulation mechanisms, mostly wind and water currents, right? And water is the great unifier of those things because it's in the air, <laughs> you know, steam, water vapor is kind of like, is it atmosphere or is it water? It's kind of, kind of, kind of bridges that gap. And so water is just this amazing thing. And you have to have an appreciation for what it does. Oh, the other thing I didn't even mention, the specific heat of water is weird. It takes a ton of energy to go, I kind of alluded to this, to go from water to ice, ice to water, or water to steam, or steam to water. It takes, it takes or releases a ton of energy, a ton of heat. And so water has the ability to resist changes in temperature. So you can have 99.9 degree air, water vapor, you know, that's going to rise really quickly because it doesn't turn to steam that fast or whatever. You know, the, the water moves around a lot and, and it pulls stuff with it. And it, it uh, complements air movement in the same way. Because remember, air and water are both fluids. They both flow. And so hopefully that's been a fun little exercise for you to think about climate change and global patterns the importance of water, because what's happening is that water is becoming scarce. Now, granted, I always use California and Arizona as an example. Water has been scarce there for decades, but we've teched our way out of it by piping water from hundreds of miles away to those places so people could have drinking water. That don't make it right. So as those places become have more water scarcity and less water security and worry more about getting water to the people. They're going to do more, right? They, are they going to start piping water from where I live? I got awesome aquifers. It's only like 2,000 miles to San Francisco or not. It's probably Southern Florida, Southern California. I don't know where the California water problems are. Are they going to run a pipe across the United States from my house? That's, that's not a real solution, right? It's not a real solution. We shouldn't have been teching our way out of this. And I don't want to be so brash as to say, it's like Sam Kinison used to have this skit where he said, we got deserts in America, we just don't live in them. You know, to people in, that lived in the Sahara or whatever and couldn't find water and food. That might not be a viable solution. But I tell you what is a viable solution, not encouraging people to keep moving to these places, right? And to get a better handle 
on what we're doing with the water situation to better understand where water is and where water isn't and sort of what those future trends may be based on what the past trends are and think about what we can actually accomplish. Think about where we spend our water, like on commercial agriculture. You know, I'm, a, I'm guilty of this because in the brewing industry, you know, for a barrel of beer or whatever, it took like five or six barrels of water. That doesn't make any sense. But you use so much in cleaning, a lot of it gets evaporated, the energy is lost, and uh, uh, you know, in the process and the cooling, all this stuff, uh, you end up using, you use a lot of water to get from point A to B. I remember reading about the cannabis industry in, in um, California, and they were basically saying, like, this is a major dent in our already starved water resources. We don't think about that. We should. We need to. I hope this helps you do it. I'm Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This has been episode 138. Water is vital to being. Thanks for your time. I'll see you next week. Take it easy.